Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance. A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of Stephen H. Wilson, Chris Lester, Ryan Levy, George Clinsos, Stephanie Sawyer, Aaron K. Balladini. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 27. Hi, this is Scott Sigler, New York Times bestselling author of Contagious and Infected, which are in stores now. You can also get my free podcast novels over at scottsigler.com. You are listening to the final episode of Predestination, and this is the story so far. Alex Hart was a gambler, and Alyssa Hartman, the woman who played him for a year, has lost. All her work for years has gone into finding and catching the traitor, Joss Kyle. And now, after everything she's done, it is she who's been caught. Joss Kyle pulled out of Space Station Nineveh with Alyssa trapped in the airlock, and now she is at the mercy of the man who murdered his way across South America, who now has nothing but time on his hands. Which leaves her partner, Jim, her employer, Doug Reeves, and Joss's former lover, Cassie, with a decision to make. Back in Luna City, we last saw Doc Boss Volish officiating Scott Walter's funeral. But it was a funeral that could only happen once they discovered that Walters was dead and who killed him. And now, the final episode of Predestination and Other Games of Chance. The raw ant told us where to find you. The cargo deck was cold. In his blindness, he'd found some mylar blankets and pulled them out from the cargo net. Then he'd hooked one arm through so that he wouldn't float helter-skelter around the cabin. The thin coverings were all that kept him from freezing. Percy knew this because his sight was returning, and the blood that still oozed from his nose dispersed into little floating marbles, hard to the touch. He knew it because he felt the oxygen's icy fingernails tear at his lungs like the caresses of an affectionate tiger. When God saw him scrambling madly, holding his torn pea suit, he must have smiled. Not enough to get him a climate-controlled ride, but enough for Percy to find an atmosphere. Have you forgotten the song? Let me um you a few bars. Yeah, they'd used bars, and pipes, and feet. Some of Scott Walter's old pals. He'd recognized two of them from pictures on the wall at Walter's flat. A crowd of five giant raging sodomites kicking the living shit out of him. If he was lucky, he wouldn't freeze before the ship docked. Or bake. If the hold wasn't heated, it probably wasn't air-conditioned. So if they turned the belly towards the sun during a maneuver... You're getting off light. We should let Volish's dog here fuck you with a spiky condom, little boy. He'd lain prone on the ground, his arm broken so badly he couldn't support his weight enough to push himself up to take another hit. Every bone and muscle felt like a piece of a massive diarrhea cramp. He kept waiting for them to lose interest and finish him off with a few good whacks to the skull. As long as they ended it fast, he didn't give a fuck. 
they never did. Once they had him lying in a pile of his own crushed bones, blood and vomit, he'd felt fingers stabbing at his bruises everywhere. Through the dizzy nausea, he saw the floor retreating as they pulled him up and dragged him forever through the tunnels, through some kind of hangar and shoved him into an airlock. The rod ant doesn't want you breathing his air. Neither do we. They stripped him of his poncho and wrapped him in a pea suit three sizes too big. All of them pulled their clothes off and stepped into pressure suits. The big one, Volish they kept calling him, held him up, made sure Percy couldn't fall down and die with some shred of dignity. They shoved him out the airlock and kicked him along the ground outside. The loose suit made him bounce like a balloon animal. When he was out on the tarmac, they grabbed him again and dragged him into a shadow under something. He couldn't raise his head to look at it. The big one stood in front of him and held the handle on the top of Percy's helmet. He yanked it up and smashed it against the front of his own. When they touched, he heard the tinny cockney brash in his helmet. He was the most beautiful man I ever met. He was kind and gentle. And you killed him so you could use him as a bomb to attack my own. Percy remembered groaning or crying, but he couldn't remember where the screams from his body ended and the sobs in his throat began. It hurts. Jesus didn't die for nothing, mate. But you're not going up on a cross. You're going to find out what makes your blood boil. Make his suffering look like a bleeding croquet match. The oaf tapped on Percy's helmet with the tip of a bowie knife. This is going to boil your fluids. You'll feel burning everywhere, and then it'll make your eyes freeze. And then you'll fall on the ground while your lungs collapse and your brain swells. In two minutes, your brain won't know anything but pain. In three minutes, you'll be trying to blow St. Peter so he'll let you in on a work visa. Percy had felt his head thrown back, and he fell forever until he flumped limply on the ground. The ogre sat on top of him, crushing his bruised pelvis even more. He couldn't open his eyes without seeing blinding flashes of pain. The sharp echoes sounded in his helmet again. I love that man more than anyone in my life. You be sure to ask Satan to castrate you for me, you sodden son of a bitch! The knife's cold was almost a relief as it parted Percy's ribs like a butcher's cleaver, and then it was gone. He heard the whistling in his helmet when the weight lifted off him. He thrashed around and tried to find the tear. He pushed in on his rib and the whistling slowed. It was getting hard to breathe. His desperation pulled him to his feet and he stumbled around under the ship. There was a ramp and a conveyor belt and a robot loading cargo. He threw himself on it as his body started jerking, and it ran him up and deposited him into the hold. The ferry hadn't cut his airline, just the suit. He found the door seal before he lost his sight. He pounded it with his helmet. He assumed the door slid shut. The vacuum kept his ears isolated from everything but his own vain attempts to breathe. The light was back now, not that there was anything to see. The cargo net secured almost everything in the hold. The right hand told me where to find you. They knew where to find him. They knew he was behind Scott Walter's death. 
They knew what flight he'd be on. They knew how to isolate him. They knew his name. Only one man in the solar system could have known all that. Bill. The cargo in the nets, pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, light fibers, were all marked with Terran routing numbers. Another day or two, and the ship would dock. Maybe the pain or the cold or the heat wouldn't kill him. If he was very lucky, he'd be able to repay Bill for all his many kindnesses before the end. Percy pulled the blanket tighter around himself, praying that he could last. Look, Reeves, we can get him back. Jim had been at him for 20 minutes solid. Reeves, slumped against the bulkhead in his hotel room, unable to even sit down because he was cornered by the apoplectic investigator, was finally looking his age. Tired, weathered, deep worry lines creasing him everywhere. The hired gun kept at him, and Cassie was happy to nurse her own pain through the morphine and let Jim go on as long as it took, so long as Reeves remained unconvinced. We've got her ship. It's still under your charter, right? We can plot a course and figure out what way he's going, and then we'll... Reeves nodded. I know you want her back. I want him back. He's got to come to Luna, too. No. She couldn't let him finish the sentence. We can't catch them. Both Reeves and Jim looked askance at her, as if expecting the goddess's wisdom to fall from her lips. Well, if she was the new prophetess, she might as well fill the role. Nobody could catch that ship. She's a stealth boat in a black sky. If Joss doesn't want to show up on radar or transponder track or anything else, he can flip a switch and disappear that bird like turning out the lights. It wasn't quite that easy. But explaining what Joss would have to go through to truly disappear would have given Jim hope. That currency had already crashed, and she was getting out of it before Reeves declared it legal tender. She's 20 meters long in a space of billions of cubic megameters. Even with a precise course heading, we have no way to know her speed, no way to know where she might be. A 0.5 degree course correction over a course of two astronomical units can leave you thousands of kilometers off course at the end. Or she might have traveled faster or slower than we guessed. We'd burn all our fuel and expend most of our reaction mass before we even got a bead on her. And by that time, you might as well use tin cans and some string to talk to each other. So what the hell do we do now? Douglas Reeves, master of squirming, leveraging, and manipulating others into serving his ends, seized her with his deep, thoughtful eyes. And he nodded. He glanced at Jim and apologized with his shoulders. Cassiopeia here is the head of the largest criminal syndicate on Luna. Mr. Kyle is the best analyst I've seen in 50 years of work in the government. You and Alyssa are the most determined bounty hunters I've ever seen. The Persians and the Americans are about to make life very uncomfortable and dangerous out here, Mr. Hartman. I was hoping that the four of you would be exactly what I needed to change the board before they make their next moves. Half of that equation is better than none of it. Reeves pushed his way past Jim. His mind made up. He was in control of the room again, exactly as if he always had been. Miss Orenthal, prepare Kyrie for launch. We're going back to Luna to finish the job I hired all of you for. We're going to push Mongoose down into those tunnels and find our moles. We're going to shut them down. And that will give the boardroom for maneuver so that we can actually set policy, rather than parroting the inane prattling of groundbound adolescents coming to us through the reps from Loxcore and TGN. 
Jim Hartman paced one way, then another, as if he'd produce a gin from the end table lamp by wearing the carpet down with his feet. To hell with that. To hell with all of you. My loyalties are for sale like that. I'm not going to work to help you steal from the country I grew up in, and I'm certainly not going to push pieces around on your infernal little chessboard, and I'm not! He raised an accusatory finger at Cassie. I'm going to help this bitch clean up the criminal class so she has an easier time organizing the drug trade or the gambling racket or the prostitution ring or whatever fucking thing she's into that takes money from regular people and uses it to grind them down. Cassie stayed out of it. This wasn't her fight, and she wasn't going to justify herself to this arrogant, oversized earthworm. Not when she'd bested him every time they'd gone up against each other. Reeves nodded his head again. It's your choice. I I'll want the deposit back, naturally, except for a small fee to cover your time here. You won't have either of our resources at your disposal to find your wife and extract her once Briggs reaches a port. But you're right. You shouldn't be pushed into violating your conscience. This isn't your war. He raised his glass to Jim, then took a drink. You're resourceful enough that I suspect you'll be able to find her without our networks at your fingertips. Cassie had never seen a man, or a woman, wear the face that Jim wore. He wasn't just angry at being outmaneuvered. He wasn't just deciding to swallow the pill and do something unpleasant. He was beaten. And he knew it. More than that, somewhere behind that face he was deciding just exactly what his principles were worth to him. And whatever side he was on, he was losing. She almost wanted to tell him not to bother. Joss had no reason to kill Alyssa. He bore a lot of respect, and Cassie suspected, a perverse attraction for her. She'd be fine as long as she didn't interfere with him too much, and even then he was more likely to drug her and imprison her than kill her. But Cassie didn't say anything. She wasn't ready to make her move yet to knock Doug off his self-built pedestal. The man wasn't holding all the cards, and when she played her hand, she wanted to savor the shock on his face. She had plenty of time. Jim Hartman, his eyes bloodshot with shame, fixed his gaze on Reeves like an accusation. Fine. When do we leave? Alec's heart watched the curling smoke, the splashing liquor, the cards on the felt. He ran his fingers through the hair on his Van Dyke beard, telegraphing a fake tell to the nameless opponent across the table. This deep in character, he never questioned who he was. The cards were everything, dizzying, dazzling, dancing like stars across his vision. They swam before him as if he watched them through a window with rain running down the outside. He remembered the smell of rain. Something inside him missed it. He heard the bicycles sliding past each other, interlocking, shifting, shuffling, the quick electric music that played the rhythm of life. Alex blinked his eyes, and the images fighting over his vision resolved. A pair of hands familiar somehow, played the cards like the body of an old lover. Alex raised his hand to try to take the deck, but he couldn't finish the movement. He felt like every muscle of his body was gliding on silk, and the sheer strangeness of the sensation arrested his attention. Alyssa, Alyssa, can you hear me? Alex cocked his head to the side. 
He knew that voice. Nod if you can hear me. Alex nodded. Good. Have a drink. You'll be feeling a little groggy from the ketamine. Sorry about that, but I couldn't have you carrying a gun around on my ship, could I? Your head will clear in a couple moments. Alex, was that his name? Reached his hand up and took a hold of a small, sealed squeeze bottle with a straw. He raised it to his lips and sipped. Peppermint schnapps. The memory sprang up of his grandfather giving him some when he was a seven-year-old girl. It was his confirmation ceremony. Alex took several sips. Yes, that was it. Allie took several sips, then looked around again. The galley looked brand new, walnut and cherrywood paneling everywhere around it. The table in front of her surfaced with green felt like a proper card table. Everything in its place. It was a proper traveling casino. What are... Where are... God damn it, she couldn't put a proper sentence together. The man across the table nodded sympathetically. It'll come back. We have four months before we get to where we're going. Plenty of time for questions. Briggs! That was it. The slippery shit was shuffling cards. He slammed the deck down on the table in front of her, but his eyes remained terrifyingly gentle. The name is Joss. Don't forget it again. Alex? No. Allie. That was her name, wasn't it? Nodded sharply, not sure what to make of him. The delusions melted the rest of the way off the surface of her mind. She knew who she was as much as anybody did. Good. Thank you. Now. Cut. Allie's moves were automatic. Someone sets a deck down in front of you. You cut. It's how things are done. She lifted the deck in one hand, and with her long fingers, she split the pile and flipped the halves around. She set it down on the table and dealt two cards. One to Joss and one to herself. They flipped. Joss showed a jack of spades. She showed a three of clubs. She tossed her card back towards Joss. Where are we? Joss tapped his card. We're at a table, and we're going to play a game. Don't fuck around, Brit. Kyle. If you're going to kill me... I had you locked in the airlock for 12 hours. I had you comatose for five. I didn't take your wallet, I didn't sniff your undies, and I didn't harm a hair on your head. Why? No reason. You're a guest here. I tried to kill you. And you winged me. Congratulations. He turned his left arm over, showing her a plasma burn strafing across his forearm. Three points for effort, but in this game, tie goes to the runner. You played well. Joss tapped his finger on the card, which still lay face up. It's always spades. Spade was the Greek symbol for fate, you know? Every time we play, it comes down to the turn of a spade. Where are we going? You're the stowaway. When I sit down, you can go wherever you like. Where am I going? It's a big universe out there. I'm happy to just go and indulge... Are you going to talk? Or deal? Kyle smiled at her, almost a friendly smile, and scooped up the cards. He loose-shuffled them one more time and started the deal. Five-card draw. Nothing. He stopped. No. He retrieved the cards and folded them back into the pack. You deal. You won the draw. I cheated you once, and you're my guest. You deal. He clopped the cards down on the felt in front of her. We have two hours before we lose our gravity. Fine. If the bastard wanted to play, then she'd fucking play. Later, when he slept, she'd find a way to get a call out. Until then... She'd keep him on his toes, 
for entertainment. It was better than nothing. She shuffled the cards absently, studying her opponent. She had no idea what he was up to, and she didn't know where she was, beyond on the ship that she'd chased him onto. But she wasn't overly worried. He obviously wasn't going to kill her, and she was an afterthought to whatever crazy plan his half-cracked brain was incubating. She offered the cards for a cut, and she felt a cruel smile creep across her face unbidden. So long as she was stuck here, there was no reason she couldn't have a little fun at his expense. She picked the deck up and dealt, the cards flowing through her fingers like hair in the wind. She missed feeling the wind in her hair. Joss lifted the corner of his whole cards and peeked. The game is seven cards stud with a buy on the last card. One-eyed jacks are wild. Reuben Briggs, the man who ruined her life, looked up from his cards and failed to say anything useful. He didn't have to. She'd carefully cultivated the reputation. Nothing went wild in her games, or indeed at her table. She left nothing to chance. That was the game he'd walked into the Port of Call to play all those months ago. Now, in his galley, as his prisoner, the woman who left nothing to chance called Wild Cards. Briggs could not hide his astonishment. Allie looked at her whole cards and smiled privately to herself. Two nines in the hole, and two threes showing up against his full show of hearts. It would be an interesting flight. Acknowledgements. Thanks to Kirk Birchie of the Stanford Linear Accelerator, who supplied me with artificial gravity equations for the rough draft, and who coached me on the various scientific things that come up in the course of an endeavor like this. Thanks also to Lorian Wheeler of NASA Ames, who, aside from appearing as Jade in this production, also helped me with the orbital mechanics for Nineveh. And for my scientific team, thanks finally to Adam McCullough and Ian Gowan, who did other astrogation and orbital mechanics fact-checking, so all the timelines comported with reality. Thanks are also due to storyteller extraordinaire Elizabeth Gibson for her relentless criticism and keeping me honest on plot lines and philosophical and sociological issues. Writing buddies of such caliber are rare. No project like this can proceed without a legion of patient readers. Doug Ellsroth, Ed Vandermoss, Elizabeth Gibson, Jerry Cambro, Ovita DeGiulia, Eric Dasher, Adam McCullough, and Kitty Nakian, who kept me intelligible and in check and whacked me upside the head when I needed it, you were all fabulous. To the people whose presence enriched my life and who graciously tolerated me through the many drafts of my first novel, you all made this experience bearable. Particularly Kitty Nakian, Dahlia Masachi, Reach Archer, Marissa Torres, and Robin Savage, who, great friends all, helped me understand the strong women in this world I made and kept me honest, breathing life into them. The cast and crew of the film Hunting Kestrel were also invaluable in building this world and in inspiring me to revisit the novel that inspired the film. Danielle Ozymandias, Locke Otley, Matthew Tuck, Larissa Cassion, Lynx Crow, Tyler Tucker, and the many others who helped bring life into the characters and backstory that make up this universe, and especially to my hunting Kestrel co-writer and co-producer Mary Mason, whose divergent perspectives and long experience tutored me in the discipline of world-building. 
all the folks who helped me out with the audiobook, its production and marketing, the entire cast, who I'll get to very soon, and particularly to those who came before me. You're too numerous to list here, but special thanks are definitely due to Nathan Lowell, Philippa Ballantyne, Scott Sigler, J.C. Hutchins, Chris Lester, and Seth Harwood. Extra special thanks to late Grandmaster Robert Anson Heinlein, whose legacy inspired and sustained my creative endeavors from the time I was 12 years old. And finally, thanks to Douglas Reeves, my boyhood friend who once lived across from my home on Cambridge Avenue in Garland, Texas. At the age of six, we started inventing stories around our Star Wars game in my backyard, and at 12 we competed from across the country for our dream of first publication. His prepubescent views on vigilante justice inspired the first scene I wrote for this book, although it eventually disappeared in subsequent revisions. The hero of these novels is named for him. Though we have long since lost track of one another, wherever you are, Doug, I've never forgotten you. And now, the cast of Predestination. Aaron K. Balabanian. Brian Levy. Stephen H. Wilson. Kitty McKeon. Stephanie Sawyer. Robin Hathaway. George Clensos. Michael Lamangelo. Nathan Lowell. Lorian Wheeler. Shannon Holden. Philippa Ballantyne. Chris Lester. Johnny Davis. Michael Spence. The Prof. Renee Wilson. Alan Sale. Kim the Comic Book Goddess. Heather Welliver. Blink Scrow. Elizabeth Rossi. T. Morris. Kimmy Alexander. Amy Guerin. Danny Shade. Justin McCumber. Christiana Ellis. P.G. Holyfield. And my name is Joss Kyle. You've been listening to episode 27 of Antithesis, book one, Predestination, and other games of chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Stephen H. Wilson as Volish and Percy, Chris Lester as Ryzen, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Brian Levy as Jim, George Clensos as Douglas Reeves, and Aaron Balabanian as Alyssa Hartman. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nikian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer. And the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license and all other rights are reserved to the author. Predestination and other games of chance. It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. (laughs) 